And, you know, so they had this external thing where, you know, Peter and John are on their way up to the temple and they see the lame man and they, and they, they, they heal him. And then they're at the temple and they're with the lame man and they're teaching about Jesus is the Messiah. And they come and they arrest them and then they're put in prison. And, and then they, they, they so then but then they explain, hey, we don't know if we're supposed to obey God rather than you guys. You guys decide that, but we can't stop speaking. And they say, don't speak in this name. And, and so then they're released and they go back to their own and then they, they pray. And remember, this is the church that's given to, um, you know, loyalty to Jesus and fervency in prayer. And they're committed to prayer and seeing God do things. And then, so God, so, so it's like, okay, they got through the wave of the external pressure of persecution and, and the, of their leaders getting arrested. And then there's this internal, so we see this relationship, and this is what we talked a little bit about before, this relationally, this early church of these people that are spiritually unified. And they're genuinely, uh, uh, they have genuine authenticity together. And, and we see the positive in uh, Barnabas and the negative in Ananias and Sapphira. And it's okay, they went through the external, then the internal conflict. And then it's like, again, boom, back in prison. And it seems like everything's working against them. And the waves just keep rolling in of this adversity and opposition. It didn't take long for the honeymoon to end for that early church. You know, Peter preaches, 3,000 get saved. Things started, it, this starts incredibly. Miracles, rapid expansion, growth, healings, sweet communion. They've been experiencing all this. They had favor with all the people. And now, they're being on trial. It's being outlawed. They don't have favor. There's emotion, there's financial pressure because now it's going to be hard for the church to function with Christianity being outlawed. There's the emotional pain of being rejected, of being misrepresented. And you've experienced that. They experience this and they so they have disfavor in the community now and and earlier in chapter four it gave us this description of how they responded, that they were fiercely loyal to Jesus, fervently committed to prayer. And then the last time we saw that they were relationally to this end, that the, the gospel produced in them this idea of, com- of communion, that they're belonging, that they belong so much together that they felt more attached to the body of Christ than they did to their own possessions. So they gave those contrasting examples that Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira showed us how serious God takes the purity of his church and the danger of having some type of spiritual deceit and trying to look more spiritual than one is. And on top of this, in this passage that we've just read, they're facing imprisonment again. And they almost die. They're left beaten half to death. And you almost want to be in this church if you're in a business meeting in this church now. You're almost like, can we ever get a break? You know, it just keeps happening. You know, and you might feel like that a little bit. And you haven't even experienced like overt persecution like they have. And so this passage is important for us because it shows us how the church responded to pressure. How they faced the pressure. So even if you do not or ever face overt persecution as the early church did. None of us will completely escape oppression in this world. And if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to face some of it. And this passage shows us how that for a church on the move, there should be an expectation of friction. You know, expectation changes everything, doesn't it? If, if, and if we're going to be a church on the move, we should expect, just like the early church had, friction. Movement produces friction. I mean, it's physics, right? Okay? And so, I mean, if you're going to be a movement, a church on the move is going to produce friction. And this church had lots of friction. Internal, external, external again. All these things happen. 
Expectation changes everything. If I, if I take you into a room, and before I, you enter that room, I say, hey, this room is a jail cell. And you walk in and you see a queen-size bed, a little ottoman, TV on the wall, um, and, a, and a private bathroom. You're going to be like, that's not so bad. It's pretty good. I wouldn't mind having a, man, we're paying too much taxes, you know? Jail cell like that? But what if, before you entered that room, I said, this room is a honeymoon suite. You go into that same room and you're like, well, that's kind of a crummy bed. And man, that cover looks like it's been worn out. And kind of the particle board thing on the wall. And this is kind of the slums, man. This is, this is the pits. What was the difference? What you expected, right? Expectation changes everything. And a church on the move is supposed to expect, because we have this Christian, we have this light version of the prosperity gospel that, you know, if I'm following God, everything's going to be hunky dory, right? People are going to come. Everybody's going to be happy. No problems. You know, no one ever has bad breath when they come to Sunday school. Right. Not saying, you know, I mean, I just ha- that, that's and we think that. And so this passage is important for us to show us that a church on the move is going to experience friction. Jesus told us to expect this. He even told us a blessed for those that are persecuted. And this the witness and the outreach of the early church was on a collision course with the forces of darkness. Jesus' kingdom was advancing. And the, Jesus' kingdom advancing is on a collision course with this world. And so you have to decide which side you're going to be on. And we saw earlier in, the, in, in chapter 4 that this, organ, that this opposition towards the early church was organized. And it was pitted against Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 27, we saw their prayer, when they prayed after Peter and John were released the first time, they took Psalm 2, the second Psalm, and uh, why do the heathen rage, the the nations imagine a Jane thing, that they've, they've organized against the Lord and against His anointed. That there's this organized, and they interpreted that and applied it to to Herod, to Pilate, to the Jewish leaders, to the Roman soldiers, and they applied it to their day, that this was all pitted against the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And so remember, it is the Sanhedrin, the, the Sanhedrin's opposition to what these apostles are doing in the temple courts is that they are doing this in the name of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. It is, and he's emphasizing the significance of Jesus' name. Don't say this in the name. They're speaking in the name. Don't say this in the name. And then when they're, they're beaten, they're counted worthy to suffer for the name. You see that word, the name, repeated. So they're okay that they're everything else. They're okay that they're up there teaching. They're okay that they're in the temple courts. They're okay that they're caring for people. They're okay that they're taking care of themselves and selling possessions and having all things in common and doing those social things. Their problem is with the theology that they're teaching. Not the teaching, not the healing, not being in the temple courts or doing so. And they respond by being fiercely loyal as it says in verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the name. Because nothing else saves. Religion doesn't save. Philosophy doesn't save. Having a relationship with God doesn't come through the Sanhedrin or Buddha or Hinduism or Islam. It only comes through the name of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not saved this morning, it comes through the name. Believe on Christ. And so... 
And so this church leaned on a few things before that gave them confidence as they suffered. They knew God's sovereignty, that he, he would bring his plan to pass, and they prayed together. That gave them comfort, and they had community together. But now they're facing this opposition again. They just can't get a break, right? It just keeps coming again. So how do you face opposition? How did they face opposition? What do you do when you face waves and pressure? See, the first thing that they is they face it. You gotta face the pressure. You gotta lean into it. My, my dad, um, you know, coached football for mo- all, most of my life, either high school or middle school. He really liked middle school football. And I remember a thing when you were on defense. One of the things he would always say would was that you 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 lean into the pressure. So if you're a linebacker. And, and you see that their, their offensive line and their backs are all blocking and coming down one way. And that pressure's coming on you. Lean into that because the ball's right behind that. Um, and so you lean into the pressure. Or if you're coming up on the next couple months and you're driving and you start sliding around a turn on the road, what are you supposed to do with that skid? You steer Away from it? No. You steer into it. You steer into the skid. Steer into the pressure. And that's how you get out of it. When you're at the beach, young ones, and it keeps, and you go down on the surf where it's starting to break, and it just keeps rolling you over and knocking you down, and you want to get past that wave, what do you have to do? You dive right through it. Jump right through it. Lean right into it. And so what we see the early church is, is, when opposition, when the waves of opposition, when the pressure comes, you face it. And the church faces it with a few things. So a church on the move faces opposition with trust, commitment, obedience, and joy. And we're going to unpack those in the time we have. So these rounds, so if we're in a boxing ring or a wrestling match or waves that come, there's three rounds that we're going to look at. In verses 17 to 25, we'll see the first round where the apostles are arrested. The apostles are arrested. And so we come in, we see these same bad guys that are mentioned in chapter 4. Same black hats. The bad guys come in. They come in and they arrest, this time, all the apostles, it says here in verse 17. They take all the apostles. So this is the second time for John and Peter. First time for the others. They're indignant and they're furious at the apostles. And the text tells us that they are motivated by jealousy tells us there and it was a, the party of the Sadducees they were filled with jealousy verse 17 the Bible speaks in Proverbs and other places about the destructive power of jealousy and so this is about the, Sadduc- the, the, the Sanhedrin but jealousy is a bad negative thing that ruins relationships and as Yoda would say it is the path to the dark side So they're arrested, all the apostles, but they something happens in verse 19. Um, have you heard by touch by an angel? These guys are jailbroke by an angel. Verse 19. An angel. Now, when you think of the job description of an angel, what do you what activities do you normally think of? What do angels do? You know, maybe they play harp, float on a cloud, right? They um, help George Bailey discover his significance in life, right? Um, 
I bet you did not think of breaking people out of jail as being part of the angel job description. Right? In fact, if breaking people out of jail was part of the job description I thought about, and if they made movies about that part of angel's job description, there would probably be more guys watching Touched by an Angel than there were. Right? Um, an angel jailbreak. Why an angel jailbreak? Why angels? Because some of the other ones, the doors just open and they walk out, right? The other ones we'll see in the other jailbreaks we see in, in Acts. But why an angel? I was asking myself that this week. Well, I think one of it is to show them and to show us that God can deliver his people from the clutches of this world anytime, anywhere, in any way that he wants. God can do it. That, that this is also a spiritual battle. And it's not of human strategy that God has lots of resources at his disposal. He's got thousands, tens of thousands of angels at his disposal. And the other thing, I think this is a little bit nerdy and a little bit of showing God's sarcastic, ironic sense of humor, is who calls for this meeting, verse 17, the party of the Sadducees, right? They're the majority. They're the majority in this Sanhedrin Senate, right? The Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of the theological liberals of the day. See, they only accepted the first five books of Moses. And so things they did not accept, so you might know, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? That was one of the things Sadducees did. Another thing that Sadducees didn't believe in was angels. So isn't it funny how God uses an angel to rescue them to the guys that don't believe in angels? There's some, there's, some, there's some humor and irony that God does that there. I think that's pretty funny. Um, but it also shows us that no matter how oppressive and no matter how the waves come and the pressure comes, God is able to deliver. He is, his resources are not bound by this world. He, he's got tens of thousands of angels plus the work that He does in providence and miracles. And He does that. So whatever you're going through, believe and trust that God is able and has the resources to deliver you at will. Whenever, however, however He wants to. But you know, God doesn't always choose to deliver us from oppression, does He? And I think our attitude, the attitude of the, of, of the apostles here, trusting this angel, is almost the same as what we see in Daniel chapter 3 in the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where... Nebuchadnezzar makes the makes the um, image and says that when the music plays and at the sound of all this, you're supposed to all bow down and worship me. And they don't. And they were called. They're called before Nebuchadnezzar and they respond with this and says, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace." And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So the, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this attitude. Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us anytime, anywhere, anyway. And if he doesn't, we're still going to follow him. 
And that's the attitude. When we face oppression, there should be a trust that comes to us. And we say, you know what? God's able to deliver this. And if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him. We're going to trust him that he's got angels at his disposal. I mean, he doesn't need... I mean, he's got his plans. He doesn't need um, my plans. He's got it down. I mean, he's got the re- his resources are going to follow through. And his plans, not mine. And that's how it's done. And then they're reminded, so they so they're trust, and they trust in God's plan to deliver, and His ability to deliver. But then in verse 20, we see a reminder of the cause. This angel says to them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, there's a little bit of a, we could chase a rabbit here, um, and, and the doctrine of angels, and what the angels do, and what angels are. Angels, whenever they speak, are to either confirm or to share what God has already said. They don't create new revelation, okay? So so when someone comes and says, well, hey, I know the Bible says this, but an angel came and told me something different. Doubt it. In fact, I'm not going to totally exclude this, but we, we don't see angels showing up later in the New Testament as much. And we don't see accounts of that in, in, in the records of the church from this time. It seems like it starts to fall off or cease I'm not totally ruling it out because there's angels around and I have stories in my family's history and your family histories as well that there's still angels among us and working and work doing God's plans. We see that in just the idea of the prayers and angels taking our prayers and things like that. It's still going there and it's real. But it reminds us that there's a spiritual element to everything that's going on. God's able. But this angel reminds them of the cause to go stand at this temple. Speak to the people the words of this life. The words of life. The word of life. And this is a synonym that's used several times in the New Testament for Jesus and the message of the gospel. The life. This is life. And that message should change us a little bit. Uh, the, the fact that this is the message of the life should, should, should change the way we see the Bible. So how does it affect you? How could seeing the, the message of Jesus as life, the way you read the Bible this week, or the way you share this message with others, or should motivate you to share this message with others. And these angels remind them of this, that there is a cause. And we've sung that song. For the cause of Christ the King, we give our lives an offering till all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the Son. For the cause of Christ we go with joy to reap, with faith to sow. And many see and many put their faith in the Son. So whose cause are you committed to? And I just want to encourage you, myself, to give yourself to a cause bigger than yourself. You know, one of the reasons you might be miserable in life is because it's all about you, that there's a cause bigger than you, to forget about yourself and give yourself to a cause that's bigger than you. Um, this is a, a prayer book called um, the Valley of Vision. It's a, a collection of Puritan prayers, and one that I... Uh, and I'd encourage you to get this and try to pray through it. I mean, it's in Elizabethan English a little bit, but but like one of the things is God's cause. And the prayer, this Puritan prayer is, Sovereign God, Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to Thee with greatest freedom to set up Thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify Thyself and I shall rejoice to bring honor to Thy name is my sole desire. I mean, just to pr- we don't pray like that anymore. But to give yourself to a cause... Bigger than you to pray that God's kingdom be established and not yours. And give yourself to a cause bigger than yourself. 
And so in this first round of opposition, we saw that they're arrested, they're rescued by an angel, they're reminded of the cause. And then comes the second round. So that's, okay, a round of opposition. And they respond in trust and commitment to the cause. So when you face a a wave of opposition, when you face a, a pressure, we would respond in one, trust and commitment to a cause. How am I going to respond when the waves come? I'm going to face it with trust and that I'm committed to a cause. There's a cause that's bigger than me. There's a cause that's bigger than you. In the second round, we see in verses 26 to 33, they knew that they were in God's hands and so peacefully, they're um, so, so they're broken out of prison. Then the angel tells them to go and teach. And so before the Sanhedrin is even out of bed, they're there at daybreak teaching and preaching the gospel. And so obeying what the, what the angel had told them to do. And the authorities find out they're there. They're shocked. It's kind of funny that they don't even realize that they're out of prison and they go. And so they go and out of fear, the text tells us, they go to them and they don't want to take them by force. But the apostles willfully go. They, they, they don't throw up a stink. They don't do a little riot. They don't do a little picketing thing. They just willfully, okay, we'll go with you guys. Um, they, don't, they don't cause a stink or anything like that. They go with them voluntarily because they're, they're peacefully trusting in God. Because the Jewish authorities have no real power over the church. The authorities of this world have no real power over the church. Um, that's why... Governments just recognize the freedoms of religion and the establishments of religion. They don't create or even redefine them. Like, God gets to define what a marriage is, and governments just recognize that. They don't get to redefine it. Uh, God doesn't get to, def- governments don't get to decide what a church is allowed to not do and not do and what they believe and what they don't believe. They just recognize the freedom. And that's why the founders of this country were so, had that such an important thing that they would not recognize an establishment of religion. That there was just, church is there. It has its role. Caesar has his role. And so, um, Peter's response in verse 29 is the same response that we see in chapter 4, but with a little more conviction. Before he said, hey, if we're supposed to obey God rather than you, you decide, but we're not going to stop speaking but what we know. Here they say, we must obey God rather than man. And last time when we saw that question in chapter that, that statement, we must obey God rather than man, we unpacked that a little bit and talked about how there are some times when there's opposition come that there's an ethical dilemma that comes when there are ruling authorities that are in opposition, that God told them to submit to their authority but follow what the, the commission that Jesus had given them, and now the angel has commanded them explicitly to do. So what do you do? And are there legitimate cases to refuse to obey our authorities? And we concluded by saying, yes, there are, but our disposition should always be to submit to the authorities God has put over us, unless they tell us to do something God forbids us to do, or to not do something that God commands us to do. And so, as R.C. Sproul says, we are always to obey those in authority over us unless that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something God commands. So, um, Peter makes no softening of the statement there to soften the guilt that these men are driven by. 
And so he says here in verse 29, we, we must obey God rather than man, the God of our fathers. So they're together. God is the God of our fathers, that God is the God of all peoples, uh, not just a particular people, he's God. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Remember, we're worried, we feel guilty that you're making it look like we had a fault in killing him. And Peter just doesn't, he just doesn't give in. He just doesn't pull back. He says, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I love that in verse 31 because they continue to preach and they exalt Jesus as the prince or the leader and the savior. And they continue to preach this big God gospel that God is the one who not only gives the forgiveness, but he also gives the faith and repentance. Remember we talked about grace alone and the solos in October? That the gift of faith and forgiveness are all the themes of this, the Bible. That this is all of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, how, according to verses... And then we see the next thing. So they, so they respond here. So I want to ask the question, how, according to verses 29 to 31... Were the disciple were the apostles liberated? How was their liberation gained? And you're going to see a word repeated. Peter and the apostles answered, "We must say it with me, obey." And then in verse 32, it says, "Whom God has given to those who obey Him." You see that phrase of this obedience. Verse 29 and verse 32 both stated, "Obedience to God's commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel." They're being obedient to it. Obedience to you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Obedience to the angel's reminder of the command to go and preach Christ in the temple. So, a way that we respond to opposition, a way we respond to when we're faced with it, is just obey what we know God wants us to do. Most of God's will is already told to us in the Scriptures. You don't have to pray about it or think about it. And when you're in opposition, when things get tough, lean into it with obedience to God. I don't know how to do Obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Just lean into it with obedience. And just by focusing on being obedient to what God has already called you to be and do, most of the other problems in our life will take care of themselves. Just be obedient. They responded to these hits, these waves of oppression with obedience. And so, are you, am I, living consistently in view of what I know about Christ? Are you living a life in accordance to what you are learning in the Scriptures? Are you refusing to do what you, anything that you know the Bible tells you you ought to be doing? Are you refusing to share your faith because of fear of rejection or maybe of appearing unintellectual or uncultured or any other reason? You're disobeying the direct command of God. A church on the remove responds to opposition by being obedient to God's Word. And then we see the third, third and final round of this match these ways this bout in verses 33 to 34 
So what was the effect of the obedience and the witness of the apostles? And we see there in verse 33, and when they heard this, they were enraged. They were furious. Anger. When they heard this and wanted to kill them, their plan is to kill them. They were furious. They were enraged. Like maybe you were with some family members this past Thursday. Right? They wanted to kill them. And it stopped by this rational reason of this this teacher, rabbi, Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, here's another part that's kind of funny. These are Sadducees, right? And what's Gamaliel? Which side of the thing is he on? He's a Pharisee. Okay? But Gamaliel is kind of this moderate. He's this political moderate, right? And he's a history guy, too. So he's like, he's kind of the moderate that he's respected, and he has a lot of good reason here. And here's why God can rescue his people, he can deliver his people by using an angel or by using a politically savvy moderate. God can use Gamaliel, he can use an angel, he can use whatever means he wants to rescue and deliver his people. Um, and, and Gamaliel gives two historic precedents. History has a way of tempering people. And you've got almost any, any faculty, the people that are into the history part of it often tempers them. Okay, well, this happened before this, so maybe it's not that big a deal. Or it tempers them to be a little more conservative. Like you could go into different Bible colleges and seminaries. And if it's a more liberal seminary, you'll, you'll often find that the, his, the church history faculty are the ones that are a little more conservative. And if you're in like a really like kind of fanatical uh, people that are like, you know, like, you know, really extreme or whatever, you'll find that the people that teach the history courses are a little more moderate, a little more balanced in their thinking. It's a good thing. So Gamaliel comes with that sense. Hey, guys, we've had two times this has happened before. Someone came and it, it all kind of pittered out. So if this is of God, um, we're not going to fight against it. But if it's not of God, it's just going to take care of itself, right? And so Gamaliel comes and they follow Gamaliel's advice. Now, Gamaliel, even though it's not a, a, a good example, he does things that the scriptures actually teach us that are good things. He comes, and here's this fury. Remember, a soft answer turns away wrath. These, these guys are enraged and furious, and Gamaliel comes, and he has a soft way of saying, hey, guys, this has happened a couple times before, and it calms them down. He's sober. He's controlled. You know something else I like about Gamaliel here that I think we can learn from him that the Bible actually teaches us about? is that he's willing to talk and re- and reason and work with people that have different opinions than he does. He's talking with the Sadducees as a Pharisee, as a very conservative and well-respected Pharisee teacher. In fact, one of his pupils that you remember is Paul when he says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And so, um, Christians need to point out heresy and error. But on matters that are maybe secondary doctrines or even lesser importance than that, we don't need to be people that are known for fighting about those all the time. In fact, Timothy even told us that the, uh, Paul told Timothy in, in the pastorals that, that the servants of God should not be quarrelsome. And I'm just going to say it. Our, the movement that our church's heritage is in and many folks around in evangelical circles are known as being people that want to fight about everything. You know, the color of the pews, whether there's a box drum or electric drum or you plug the guitar in or not. It's like, 
don't be known. I mean, have opinions, but don't be known as being fighting about everything. You don't have to fight about everything. Um, and Gamaliel shows a little bit of a good, adi- good, good, good example in that way. But Gamaliel is not the standard here, and he's only halfway right, in my opinion. So he says, if this plan is of God, it will come to nothing, and then if it is of God, we can't overthrow it. So I think he's right on the second part, wrong on the first part, because he says, if this plan is not of God, it will come to nothing. Now that happened in the two instances that he shared here. Um, in fact, um, one of them, Josephus in secular history, tells us about. But there are other heresies or wrong movements that are actually very old. Islam's a good example, right? Centuries old, but hasn't pittered out like um, Gamaliel said. If it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. Or other old, there's a lot of ancient heresies and ancient religions that are still around in different ways. You know, places in South America, places in Egypt, places in Asia, places even here in the States, on the TV screens, you know. And you see a lot of these ancient religions are still around. They haven't, like Gamaliel said, they would. But then here's where Gamaliel's right. He says in verse 39, you should look at it with me. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. If it's of God, you can't overthrow it. The gospel of God is unstoppable. God had decreed that his church would make progress. Remember he said in Acts 1.8, which is really the theme and the memory verse of the whole book of Acts, because it's not only the, um, the, the theme of Acts, but it also gives an outline of Acts. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Uttermost parts of the world. And we see the book of Acts unfold. Chapters 1 through 7 in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28 to the ends of the earth to Rome. It's an outline and the theme of the book in one verse. But the gospel advanced is promised. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea. The gospel advances despite opposition. And this doesn't happen because of human strength. But it's the supernatural enablement that is needed that God has given to His church and His gospel. It happens despite opposition, despite weaknesses, despite persecution. And we see that happening in Acts. That it's going to move on. Demonic forces, worldly powers, authorities, government, barriers, suffering, unjust imprisonments, shipwrecks, internal disunity among the church. Yet the gospel still advances. The gospel advances despite the ethnic and cultural and geographical and gender and wealth barriers. The gospel advances. And every time the gospel meets opposition in the book of Acts, God finds a way to let that message advance, whether that be through an angel in a prison or a moderate political figure. Some of the most overt attempts to squash the movement of the gospel are the ones that have actually led to its expansion. And we could walk through history and see those that tried to oppose the church actually did things that helped fuel the spread of the gospel. No one is able to overthrow the gospel because, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The church cannot fail. Jesus said, I would build my church. 
R.C. Sproul said of this, the church, it is the only institution on the face of the earth that has an absolute and unconditional guarantee for its future success. Not every church or church member, but the true church of Christ will always be victorious and it cannot be stopped by the conditions of human affairs. You know, there's an old bluegrass tune that Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs used to sing called Let the Church Roll On. I mean, have you guys ever heard that old song, Let the Church Roll On? You can YouTube it. It's it's very bluegrassy. But, and, and so it, it was, and, and Kate, she's not here, but, but uh, Mahalina Jackson also recorded it on the on the gospel song side of it all back in the 60s. But, um, but anyway, but it would say that if things go wrong, if the preacher's in sin, the deacons are in sin, if there's people, if there's women in, the, in sin, go on, the church is going to roll on. And, uh, and that's really what we're seeing this, that the church is going to roll on despite all the different efforts of opposition. The church rolls on because it faces this opposition with trust, commitment to the cause. And then we're going to see later on here the result. They are beaten. And, and probably in the way, 39 times, they're a gruesome, a gruesome beating in verses 41 and 42. But they respond to that beating with joy and perseverance. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And Jesus had spoken a beatitude in Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And how do they do? How do we take a beating? How did they take a beating? They get up, they count it all joy, and they move on. You can almost insert Rocky Balboa quotes right there. You know? Um... So how do you face opposition? How did the church face opposition? Is opposition something you shrink back from and just let it pummel you in the waves or slide off the road or let the ball go right past you or is it something you lean into, dive through, steer into? A church on the move faces opposition with trust, commitment to the cause, obedience, and joy. So our response to opposition as a church, you get following this example in this text, is belief, commitment to the cause, obedience, and joy. And the gospel has brought all this to us. It's all because of the gospel that we have this. As the old hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her and for her life he died. And a third verse of that hymn says this. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Commit yourself. Lean into these things. Be part of this cause that has its guaranteed success. Be part. Commit yourself to the cause bigger than yourself with belief, commitment, obedience, and joy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. We would ask that you would help us as we respond to it and apply it to our lives in the various ways that res- that show um, um, 
our obedience to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond with a hymn of invitation that you are invited to respond as we sing. And so that may mean that you need to maybe repent of some things. You might need to believe the gospel and be saved. Uh, There might be some joy and opposition that you just need to um, give up and obey or, um, or believe God about something and trust him. As we sing and respond, let's respond to uh, this passage and what God's done in our hearts.